Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole, or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. That's C-O-N-C-E-R-N-I-N-G-H-I-M.com. Welcome back to our study of the Gospel according to Matthew. Uh, We are studying the Sermon on the Mount, and we've now reached what could be called the body of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, The first little bit is the introduction, and that extends from verses 1 to 16 of chapter 5. But in verse 17, uh, the Lord Jesus now enters what could be called the body proper. So in in that introduction section, uh, Jesus began with the Beatitudes. He's proclaiming the nearness of the kingdom blessings. And he's also identifying the sorts of people for whom this Advent really is good news. It's good news for the poor in spirit. It's good news uh, for those who mourn, etc., because theirs is the kingdom, and so on. They were described as those who are generally disenfranchised and trodden down upon in this world. But we also talked about how there was an ethical dimension to all of this. There are the pure in heart, there's the meek, etc., uh, and we saw that in an earlier episode, uh, this, this foreshadows concepts which are elaborated elsewhere in the sermon. Well, we're now going to start thinking about those things. The disciples with him on the mountain are within this scope, this group of people who are the blessed ones. But this doesn't mean that Jesus or his disciples are to be unconcerned with the salvation and the well-being of those outside that scope. Their attitude isn't to retreat from the world but to have a saving influence on it, to be salt and light to it. Now, surely this involves several dimensions, but what's picked up here in Matthew 5.16 is, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So, the Beatitudes have foreshadowed that the disciples are characterized by certain ethics. And what we could call uh, the heading of the body, verses 13 to 16, have described the function of these ethics to be like salt and light. Their good behavior is for the benefit of the world, even though the tragic irony is that the world persecutes them. What follows then is an elaboration of the kind of ethical behavior Jesus has in mind. Verses 17 to 20 adamantly insist that Jesus' code of ethics is not something new, nor is it something different from what the Hebrew Bible has commanded. Uh, Listen carefully as I read, starting in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one yoda, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What we then have that follows this in verses 21 to 48 have often been called the antitheses due to their form of, you have heard that it was said, dot, 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 but I say to you. Now, verses 17 to 20 demonstrate that the content of what 
you have heard that it was said, can hardly be what we read from the Mosaic Law. No, Jesus insists that what he is about to say does not contradict the Torah. All of that must be fulfilled. Every uh, jot and tittle, a reference to the smallest Hebrew letter, yod, which almost looks like an apostrophe, or a tittle, or in the Greek, it's the word that means a horn. It's uh, a small hook to differentiate the letters, kind of like the stroke that differentiates uh, the letter E from the letter C. I'm thinking of the lowercase letters. The antitheses are not between Jesus' code of ethics and that of Moses, but between Jesus' code of ethics and uh, the erroneous interpretation of the Torah. Now, Jesus' pro-Torah stance in these verses has caused, well, not a little concern for interpreters and theologians, particularly when it comes to the modern believer in the church's relationship to the Mosaic Law. Some, uh, particularly older classical dispensationalists, have said that this shows that Jesus is operating in a different era. And so what follows in the Sermon on the Mount is not directly applicable to the church. Since, for example, uh, Paul tells the church in things like Romans 7.4, you have died to the law through the body of Christ. Well, we can conclude, they say, that Jesus' words are not directed at the same audience as that of Romans. Now, one of the insurmountable difficulties with this view is that it does not allow for the Gospel of Matthew to just stand on its own two feet. It means that it's a good thing somebody had Romans before you read Matthew. What about the poor people who just read Matthew? They would be led astray? That doesn't make any sense. In other words, uh, this approach makes the exegetical error of using Romans as a key to unlock meanings which could never have been found in Matthew alone. If we were to simply consider this gospel as a document by itself, then there's nothing to suggest that Matthew 5, 17 to 20 has been overturned. In fact, uh, 28, 18 to 19, the Great Commission has Jesus' disciples teaching everyone to obey everything that Jesus taught. Moreover, the language between 5.17 to 20 is not as difficult to harmonize with Paul as is often thought. To be sure, there are different writers and their own unique approaches need to be appreciated in the progress of Revelation. Paul isn't Matthew, Matthew isn't Paul, and it's important to respect that. And yet, notice that Matthew 5 talks about the necessity of everything in the law being fulfilled. This parallels in uh, a kind of inclusio or, or bracketing device around the body of the Sermon on the Mount uh, with chapter 7, verse 12, which says, In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. An interpretation of Romans, now, of course, is outside the scope of our series here, but let me just point out a few things of how similar this sounds to some Pauline passages. Consider Romans 8, verses 12 and 4, as something of a conclusion of the dilemma presented in chapter 7, which says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And then in Romans 13, 8 to 10, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, 
you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. These kinds of categories, fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law, the prohibition against committing adultery, murder, theft, covetousness, and so on, are the sorts of issues of concern to Jesus in Matthew 5. In other words, if all we read was Matthew 5, 17 to 20, it would sound like Jesus is saying, obey the Old Testament law, all of it, end of story, moving on. But we shouldn't just read these verses in isolation. They're part of a larger whole, the entire Gospel of Matthew. The rest of chapter 5, the so-called antitheses, explains the sorts of things Jesus has in his mind when he uttered verses 17 to 20. That this is not all that Jesus has to say about his disciples' relationship to the law will be seen later on when Jesus butts heads with the religious leaders about things like keeping the Sabbath and uh, ceremonial matters. As something of a spoiler, uh, so here's a spoiler alert, when we get to those sections, like in chapters 11 and 12, we will see that the Old Testament law does not simply map over to the disciples. Uh, Because of who they are in connection to Jesus, they have an unexpected and somewhat surprising relationship to the law. But both uh, Matthew's way of putting it, uh, as he records the words of Jesus, and also Paul's way of putting it, is that the disciples, believers, have a positive relationship with the law in which they are expected to fulfill the righteous requirements uh, contained in the, the ethical imperatives. Okay, so let's get back to our text. We've seen that this 5:17 to 20 is the beginning of what can be called the body of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' code of ethics are not in opposition to Paul, uh, but nor are they in opposition to Torah. What he is about to say should be interpreted as the fulfillment, the true intent of the law. Because all must be accomplished or fulfilled, verse 19 says that the one who relaxes or annuls the least part of a commandment will be called the least. But whoever does and teaches will be called great. On its own, this makes it seem like there is simply a one-to-one correspondence between Torah adherence and position within the kingdom. However, Matthew will record for us much that the Lord has to say about other elements that factor into the equation, like childlike humility and faith in chapter 18. The law, then, is so important for Jesus that maintaining it determines one's relationship to the kingdom, which he's been announcing. And yet, that's not all that Jesus has to say. What kind of relationship does he have in mind? He talks about uh, being called, being called least or being called great. And this should be understood as a divine passive, which means uh, God is calling you this. Uh, For example, in verse 9, earlier in the Beatitudes, uh, they shall be called the sons of God, means that God has pronounced the verdict that that's what they are. They are his children. And those who loosen the commandments are called, that is, God says it, and so they actually are, the least in the kingdom. And those who do and teach are called, that is, they actually are, great in the kingdom. Now, Jesus has uh, leaders in view here, and Robert Gundry suggests that he may be playing on the word rabbi, or rebbi, which means my great one. The truly great, great one, the truly great rabbi, is the one who does and teaches the law. The least rabbi, 
the least so-called great one, dismisses it or relaxes it. Now, the concept of varying status levels within the kingdom has parallels in later rabbinic thought. In his study of Matthew 5, John Meyer discusses rabbinic tradition in which those who made themselves small for the law would be great in the future world. They, along with the martyrs, were to be assigned the first of seven divisions in the next age. More significantly, the idea of varying status levels, some being greater, some being less, has parallels in the Gospel of Matthew itself. Uh, Chapter 19, verse 28, talks about the disciples sitting on 12 thrones, ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel. In the next chapter, um, that is Matthew chapter 20, James and John want to have positions of honor, being at the right hand and left hand of Jesus. Jesus' critique only concerns their ideas of how to achieve these positions, but doesn't overturn the basic categories themselves. Instead, in in 2023, Jesus affirms that those positions do exist, but that they are for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. So, with these parallels in mind, the easiest way of taking 519 is that the Lord is discussing the importance of obeying and teaching the law in regards to one's status in the kingdom, not being included or excluded from it. What's in view, again, is kingdom greatness. Now, some have objected to this, since the logic is that breaking one small part of the law means being least. So, breaking two laws would mean you've got to be out because the one who broke one is the least. But this ignores what seems to me as an obvious hyperbole, a kind of play on the words least. This is what Greek grammarians call the superlative for the elative. Uh, A kind of like when I say, my daughter is the cutest, and I say it in front of her sister. I don't mean to say that Uh, She's any cuter than any of my other kids. By saying cutest, I just mean really cute. Similarly, Jesus' description of people being least is best understood as him saying they're just really small. The idea then is that um, God is paying very careful attention to our adherence to his word. Jesus is insisting that his followers have to take God's law seriously. It hasn't been set aside. It hasn't been done away with. No, we must obey God's word. Uh, So much so that when the kingdom of God does arrive, our status in that future kingdom will be determined in part by the extent to which we've actually done what God commanded. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit emmaus.edu partner.